Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and folks, he is back. I know you just heard this name a little while ago. We were talking about his many, many movie roles, his new studio, but that's really just one small part of, of what he does. My next guest is also a very well-known author. John Murs is back. I tried to keep him out, guys. I actually tried to lock the door, but he managed to sneak in. Let me in. <laughs> Damn it, John. Fine, fine. Come on in. Come on in. I'm going to do the, uh, the Glick thing from uh, from uh, Salem's Lot then. Fine, fine. Sit down. We'll do this thing. Oh, my God. Uh, but, but, uh, but seriously, man, uh, of course, writing is a huge part of uh, what you do and... We could spend all day here, but uh, you know, first off, man, welcome back. It is so cool to have you back in the studio. Thank you, sir. All right. So let us dive, of course, into what you're probably best known for, the Lost in Vampire series. Uh, this is actually something you're also working on, and we'll talk about this in a future interview. You're looking to develop this into a television series as well. You're currently working on everything. You got the cast together. We'll talk about that yep. one down the road. Cool. This, this one kicked off, though, with The Fixer. That was the first one in 2002. Yep. Now, I believe it's 35 books later. Um, the series is still going strong. Yeah. My question to you is, when you started writing this, did you intend it to be a series at all of any length? No. <laughs> no, I did not. So it was, um, I want to say it was sometime around 2000. I wrote, I got, when I started writing, I had, I had two areas that I, that I really loved. I loved reading espionage novels and I loved reading short horror stories. And I sort of had models for both of those areas. My model for the espionage novel was David Marl's The Brotherhood of the Rose, which to me was just this perfect book in terms of a thriller. So it became... I dissected that book. I mean, I opened it up, ripped it apart and was like, what's he doing here? What's he doing here? How do I, how do I adapt that to my writing? And for short stories, I was really grooving on Night Shift by Stephen King. I just, I, you know, One for the Road is one of my favorite all-time short stories because it's, it's just utterly perfect to me. To me, I mean, I, I realize I'm opening myself up for, for a lot of debate and discussion on that, but I, I love the way he sets the setting the isolation, the the characters, the buildup, and the payoff—it's it, it, and it's just so tight and just so good. I get super excited anytime I hear that somebody's trying to make that into a movie. And I know right now, actually, there are a couple of folks up in Maine because because uh, Stephen King has a great program where he lets aspiring filmmakers, you know, basically option his stories for really small money, especially if they're students. And then it, as long as he agrees with the idea that they have to execute on it, they can option it for like super cheap money and just go out and, and do their thing. So I'm super excited about that. So I had those two sort of areas that I was uh, that I was looking at. And one day I wrote a short story called Past Imperfect, um, which is probably like PTSD from my years of going to Boston Latin School um, and being forced to study Latin. But uh, it was literally a case of you got your espionage on my horror, you got your horror on my espionage, you got a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup commercial. And I submitted that to a website called zoetrope.com, which was run by Francis Ford Coppola. And there was, um, it got great feedback. People read it and they were like, this is really cool. And somebody reached out to me and she said, I'm a slush reader for a literary agency in New York City you need to turn this into a novel because it's 
it's got the legs that could make it into a novel. And I thought, okay, you know, this is the first thing that I've written that really seems to be hitting a lot of people. Um, Cause I had had a few short stories published before that. So I took the next, oops, I took the next year to flesh out uh, what would eventually become the fixer. And then in 2001, my new year's resolution was to find an agent. So I got, um, Jeffrey Herman's Guide to Literary Publishers and Agents, that big, thick, yellow pages book that used to come out. I don't know if it still comes out or not. I went through that, picked out a dozen agents. Every one of them rejected me except one who was based in New Mexico. And I sent her the first 50 pages and she called me up and signed me. And she sold um, the first two books. She said, I'm going to do a two book deal. So start thinking about a second book. And I said, OK, I'll, I'll start thinking about a second book. And then I went to a book signing with Robert Parker. And uh, after the signing was over, I went up to him and I said, you know, I really loved your Spencer novels growing up. It had a big impact on me. Um, I really love the way you write. I just got a publishing deal. And I was wondering, would you blurb my novel? And uh, he said, yeah. He said, do you want me to read it or do you want me to blurb it? And yeah, right. So being young and stupid, I said, well, I want you to blurb it, you know? <laughs> so he, true to his word, a, a week or two later, uh, he blurbed it. I don't know that he ever read it. Now, from this perspective of 20 plus years later, I wish he had actually read the book as opposed to blurbed the book, but he gave me a good blurb. And then my agent took the blurb and went to the publishing house and probably sold two more books in the series. And before I knew it, I had a series and um, I, all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, well, now I have to get into world building and, uh, you know, all this other stuff. And now I have to go back and kind of fix some things and, you know, all this other stuff. And then it's just, it's been, you know, off to the races. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and now here we are 35 books later. When you first learned that you had this series on your hand, were you thinking, all right, or, oh, shit. It was a little bit of both, it, you know, it really, I mean, I was overjoyed at the time because I had a newborn son and, um, you know, I dedicated the second book to him because I, I pro primarily wrote the second book, you know, kind of like this, balancing a, balancing a bottle and feeding him and typing with one hand, which side note, I should be really good at texting, but I suck at it. Yeah, considering that I wrote like the better part of a novel with one hand, but I, for the life of me, I'm a, I'm a pecker on the on the phone and i can't figure out how the hell they do this so it must be a symptom of age or something like that but uh yeah i was simultaneously excited because it, it was another paycheck that came in from the publisher um you know meant the more bills and more diapers were going to be bought with that so that was a good thing uh but at the same time it was daunting it was it was really like wow i don't how am i going to sustain this over four books not really thinking it, it might go beyond four so by the time I get to the syndicate, which is book four, you know, Lawson is is really suffering from from burnout. You know, the end of that book is very much like, I don't know, speaking as Lawson, like, I don't know what I want to do. I'm burned out. I need to get away from this. And that was when Kensington decided that they weren't even going to continue the series. So it was very much, you know, when I wrote that book, it was very much like, well, this may be it you know this may be where where it ends and at that time i was also going through a lot of um pretty intense training in the martial art that i study 
and I always knew that I wanted to bring Lawson over to Japan because for me, Lawson is sort of a convenient way to talk about some of the stuff that goes on in my life. Obviously, I'm not a vampire, but the things that I have gone through a lot, I will speak of in one way or another when I'm writing Lawson. So I wanted Lawson to sort of have that trip to Japan that I eventually took. Well, I, I actually had taken it at that point and go through the test that I took for the martial art that I study. And so I always, you know, in the back of my head, there was always like, oh, I'd really like to do a fifth novel and just talk about that and introduce people to, you know, sort of the authentic version of ninjutsu that I study and, and see it through Lawson's eyes and then somehow wrap another adventure around that. So um, he, you know, he was, he was away for a few years and then I came back and I wrote that novel and around that time was when myspace was really big and i decided to try to do some sort of serialized fiction with myspace and i actually got them on board with it we did the courier for myspace uh i didn't make any money off of it or anything like that but it was kind of cool to sort of look at the technology that was evolving at that time and, tr and try to figure out you know how do i take advantage of this how do i get involved with that and so the courier sort of became a, a a bridge between the syndicate and the Kensei, which is the fifth book. I had another short story called uh, The Price of a Good Drink, where Lawson is on his way to the airport. So it's immediately after the syndicate when he figures out, I got to get out of Boston, I need a vacation. He goes to the airport and interestingly enough, runs into conspiracy theorists. So, you know, here I am predicting the future way back when, but whatever. Um, and then we've got the courier because his plane gets diverted to Manila in the Philippines. And then eventually he makes it to Japan. So all this stuff was going on. And it was around that time I started figuring out not every adventure has to be a novel. There can be stories, there can be novellas. And I just started having fun with it. And it, it just, it took on a life of its own. Okay. All right. Let's talk Sorry, a little more. <laughs> yeah, really. Let's talk about Lawson as a character. So he is a vampire by birth, a fixer by trade, and his <clears throat> overall mission is to prevent the existence of living vampires from being just kind of known to the whole world. He's, he's right. keeping this whole thing a secret. I want to ask about Lawson as a character, kind of like how he came to be and who he is. Yeah. And so he he was much more an abstract in the beginning than he is now he is i always knew that i wanted somebody that had kind of cool one-liners or sarcastic streak to him but over the years he's sort of developed more and more of my sensibilities so you know it's i was very careful at the beginning to not model lawson on myself because we're worlds apart in a lot of ways um, even though we've gone through a lot of the same experiences. But the funny thing is, is over time, I just find myself, I don't want to say injecting social commentary into Lawson, but it does tend to happen. Um, you know, he has a lot of the same uh, things that he gets annoyed at that I get annoyed at. Um, and one, so, yeah, I mean, so he's grown over time. He's grown closer to who I am. But still, I think there are aspects of him that are separate from, from me. Um, I think one of the things that I, I like about writing Lawson and the other characters in, in the universe is that if I have an opportunity to say something or present something to the reading public, I want to kind of mess with their minds a little bit. So I have a lot of readers from all over the political spectrum 
And one of the things that I like doing is presenting a character that seems to be just stereotypical, like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that guy, he's this, or that woman, she's this. And then proceeding to flip that completely on its head and hopefully screw with their, their mentality about what they think a certain stereotype is. For example, Lawson's Control, Niles is gay. And when I first introduced Niles in The Destructor, I present him very stereotypically in terms of what people used to think of as a gay man. So he's effeminate, you know, he does Pilates, he's, he, he seems very, not necessarily insecure, but fearful and very, you know, effeminate and, and this, that, and the other thing. But by the end of The Destructor, Lawson's kind of a, I mean, Niles is kind of a badass, you know, he, like he, he all, he's all too willing to put his own career and life on the line for Lawson. He wades into a really terrible combat situation and comes through it, you know, with ease. So for readers who think, well, you know, this gay character, he's not going to be able to stand up and take a punch or, you know, do this because he's gay, you know, or some antiquated bigoted idea of what that is. By the end of that book, you're, you're forced to confront the fact that this guy is just like this guy. It doesn't matter what the sexual preference is. You know, I served with a lot of people from all over the sexual spectrum and the gender spectrum, and they were all fantastic people. It doesn't matter. And that's and that's one of the things that I really try to get across, you know, in my books. And another book, Lawson has a hacker that he needs to call upon. And the hacker is transitioning. And it's and it's very much a case of, well, you know, I, I you know, for the people out there that are just very much like, well, that's just so obscene and blah, 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 you know, the usual crap that they that they spew. By the end of that story, this particular character is integral to good triumphing over evil. So it, it's it's that case of get rid of that stupid shit that's in your head and realize that people are just people and people are just trying to get through the day and come home to somebody that they love and feel comfortable in their own bodies. And everybody is their own badass if you give them the opportunity to be that badass. And that's that's really one of the things that when I write Lawson from and, and inject my my viewpoints and my and my standpoints in there, that's really what that's what I really enjoy about writing him is that you know he comes across these people and Lawson just really doesn't give a shit <laughs> about who you love or who you are or who you want to be. He just needs to know that you have his back, which is at the end of the day, the most important thing of all, you know, who can you rely on? Who can you trust? Who is your support network? None of this other shit matters. And if it, and if it is something that you obsess over, then the problem is not external. The problem is internal. And so that's kind of where I'm at. All right. <laughs> so it really seems like your series is kind of holding a mirror to the world because when I think of the time period from 2002 to now, we've seen such a shift in society and culture. Has the series kind of grown with the times, whether it's like, whether it's with the societal shifts or even like the other shifts with, say, uh, technology or medicine? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, during the pandemic, I wrote a couple of Lawson adventures that were the, took that into account, you know, and how, you know, the, the vampires in Lawson's world don't get COVID, but they still had to wear face masks in order to, because that was part of blending in. Can't have a whole segment of society walking around without, without face masks kind of, kind of gives up the whole, 
the whole gig right there. So yeah, kind of like a red flag, I think. It's like, right, oh, yeah, wait a minute, all know. those guys don't wear masks, and they and also not wearing Confederate T-shirts. Well, so that doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, really. So. <laughs> <laughs> Something's up here. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, also the technology. I've got another story. Um, the specialist that kind of is an oblique reference to, excuse me, um, genetic technology and cloning and stuff like that. So yeah, as the world changes, so does, so does Lawson's universe. It's definitely, I think any good series has to account for that because otherwise it's just going to end up being, it's going to feel really dated. Um, yeah, I, I, I really want my, my work to be read and be able to be read 50 years from now, a hundred years from now. Um, so yeah, so it, it, you have to, you have to inject all that stuff in there, I think. Okay. You talked earlier about how Lawson is only like a partial reflection of you. Um, was that something you were really trying not to do to write yourself into your own series? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say it feels like oh my god that's so egotistical the author is like you know pretending to be this or pretending to be that but at the same time it's it's funny because i enjoy writing lawson so much that when i get an opportunity to kind of say something that i would say i take it because it's it's fun for me to read it back and and say you know be able to see that and go oh yeah so you talked about the pilot and we're not going to divert too much from this, but when it came time to find an actor to play Lawson, because I've had people over the years go, well, why don't you just play Lawson? I'm like, well, Lawson's believe it or not, Lawson is not really me. He's not, he's got a lot of the same sensibilities. He's got a lot of the same viewpoints, but he's not me. And I don't want to play him, but I want the actor to be somebody that has some of the same sensibilities that I have somebody that I would want to sit down and have a drink with and just shoot the shit. And so Brandon Stumpf who plays Lawson in the pilot is somebody that I like, I love him like a brother. He's, he's fantastic. I mean, we, we get together, we haven't seen each other in a long time. It's like no time has passed. You know, we have these great conversations. Um, he's, you know, he's a, he's a veteran like I am. Um, and he's just always sort of, he just slid right into that role. It was really a case of, I saw his picture online and I went, oh yeah, that's kind of how I've always pictured Lawson to look. And then when I met him that first night and I've known him now for you know over a decade, um, he just slid right into the role and it was very much like, oh, this is really cool because this guy should be playing Lawson. He really, really should. It wasn't a case of, well, I always wanted to play Lawson, but I guess I can't, I gotta find somebody, you know, that kind of shit. Uh, but Brandon, to me, after the first night that, that we filmed a couple of teaser things a long time ago, and I was talking to the director, and we were both just like, wow, he just, that's it. Like, that is Lawson right there. So it's really cool. Plus, I think casting yourself as the lead in, like, your own TV pilot, I, yeah. I, I don't know. Something about that just seems a little off to me. You got to have yeah, one I had a hard enough time. Yeah, I had a hard enough time putting myself on the – on the cover of my Deathmaster series, you know, as the, as the cover model for that, you know, because it was, <laughs> what it came down to was I went looking for stock photos and I couldn't find anything that was conveying the image that I wanted to convey. So I'm in my home studio here right now and I had this little green screen and I'm like, well, the hell with that, I'll throw a leather jacket on and just hold a pistol. 
and I kind of liked the way it looked, but you know, but in terms of actually playing the character, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've written myself. Don't get me. Don't get me wrong. I've written myself into the pilot as another character, but not Lawson. Not Lawson. Yeah. All right. What about the vampire world? How deep is this? It's deep. Yeah. I mean, they've been around probably about ten thousand years. I think is what I say in the fixer when prehistoric man used to believe that the animals that they slew or slayed slain and if you drank their blood you would get their powers this branch of humanity that would eventually become vampire uh believed that about the humans that they killed so they started drinking their blood and then over time their metabolism started ingesting life force energy derived from that blood it's lengthened their lifespans. It's given them a few other abilities, like the ability to see better in the dark, a little bit extra strength and, and that sort of thing. So it's they've been around for a long time. It, but it was only until, it was only, where are we? Probably about the six, 15 or 1600s when they started to coalesce and come into this, uh, we need a governing body, the council, and we have to put some rules in place. And so... Kendrick the Great is the name of the first fixer that ever was. So that's a little bit of history of the service. In my other series, uh, the Wolfric Vampire series, which is only one book right now, but I'm in the middle of the second book, uh, is the story of one of Lawson's ancestors, Wolfric Schwarzwalder, um, who actually becomes a fixer back in the 1700s. And he's mentored by a guy named Felix, who's another fixer. So those are his adventures. So it's interesting that Lawson has family members. I'm just spraying things all over the place. It's going to be this huge universe. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I, w- I was really curious about that, too, because 35 books, that's a big universe to make. I mean, what were the challenges as you were kind of growing the series and also adding new characters and new situations yeah. and new plot lines? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the biggest challenge is is making sure things don't feel stale. Like it's another conspiracy it's another somebody out for you know world domination and that that gets tough and there are you know i'll be completely honest with you there are a few adventures where you know i wouldn't be offended or surprised if people felt like it was a little phoned in you know because i think as authors you have to be willing to admit hey this wasn't my best day out at the ballpark you know but I've got this other one over here that's really good. So it makes up for it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's the biggest challenge is trying to keep the storylines interesting and intriguing. Um, I've got a lot of I, what I enjoy doing is when I do a new series, uh, I do a new story, rather, is trying to introduce something that doesn't get resolved in that adventure, but rather gets picked up three adventures down the road. Um, I've got ghost work that adventure takes place over in Sarajevo and Lawson is introduced to somebody named Doris who is sort of the fixer equivalent in the lichen world and is every bit Lawson's equal and then maybe some on top of that like this guy is really really good he's top drawer at what he does and then I just leave that alone daris goes his own way at the end of that adventure lawson goes his own way it was it's very much a meeting of oh okay um there's there's two of us in this world and we might butt heads sometimes we might be friends sometimes you don't really know 
and I've got uh, I've got a story coming out where I actually bring that character back. So it's it's fun to just have these threads that you can kind of pick up and put back together and then maybe take them apart and another one. I think that's a big part of trying to keep things fresh is if you can do that, if you can inject little Easter eggs or whatever you want to call them and then pick them up a little bit later on and people who are faithful readers of the series get to go oh hey cool i didn't know this guy was going to be in it that's pretty cool i liked him in in that book i liked her in that book you know let's see where it goes now so why haven't you stopped over 35 books why haven't you said okay you know what i think it's time to put this thing to bed it's gone on long enough yeah um i'm well first of all i'm building towards something so there is sort of a penultimate uh an ultimate goal here eventually and i have it in mind i'm just not entirely sure about the path to get there just yet um but also because i write a number of series so i have a you know a number of characters that i can kind of go to and, and say does this idea work with this main character does it work over here better and a lot of times what will happen is i'll come up with an idea and lawson's the only one that i feel can really execute on it so it's it's funny that while I do have this ultimate goal, I don't know how long away from that goal I am. So, I mean, it could, some days it feels like, well, I'm two books away from wrapping up Lawson and putting them away. And other times it's like, well, I don't know, I could have 25 more adventures in me if these ideas keep popping in and Lawson seems to be the only one that can really kind of execute on that idea, so... Cool. You know, I was actually checking this out earlier um, because I know like a lot of folks um, associate the, uh, the Wheel of Time series as being like such a long series, 14 books, I believe, you know, it goes on for, yeah. forever. And here you are almost like tripling that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just I love being in Lawson's world. Mm -hmm. You know, he he goes through, as I said before, he goes through a lot of the stuff that I've gone through. He goes through some things that are entirely of his own making. Um, and I love, because I've got the origin series too, which has like nine adventures in it um, between novels and short stories and novellas. And sometimes those ideas pop in and it's, it's you know, I grew up in the eighties. It was, I love revisiting that time frame. You know, that was, you know, before the events in the fixer. Um, and I love sort of popping back there and really injecting a lot of pop culture reference and music and, stuff like that like you know my my first the first couple of Lawson books I mean you know Lawson's got my my taste in music so it's like Heavy New Water, Joy Division, um, you know Vivaldi, Gary Newman you know just all over the place in terms of where my musical sensibilities came from so I I, I enjoy being able to pop back into the time machine for for Lawson's earlier adventures and and talk about you know crazy stuff that I saw back when I was before I was old enough to go to nightclubs and and sort of project and, and have a little fantasy, you know. Oh well, this is what it would have been like, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Oh man, does Lawson kind of grow with like the pop culture in terms of like the movies, music, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I don't think he really talks in any of the adventures about any of the movies per se. He'll have, I think I've got a quip from him in one of the adventures about the Kardashians and just trying to figure out why the hell this is so popular kind of thing. Um, you know, which again is one of my sensibilities, but whatever. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think Lawson grows with, with 
the time. And I think that that is, is probably sort of this unspoken rule in vampire society in order to remain hidden and protect their very existence. They have no choice but to grow and adapt because otherwise they'll, they'll just become stagnant and die out, which is more or less what I feel about the human race as it is right now anyway. We have to grow, we have to adapt, we have to recognize that things change and we have to be willing to change with them. Otherwise you just get old and die. And that's, you know, that's no way to live as far as I'm concerned. You know, I don't wanna be the angry guy yelling at the cloud or yelling at a beer company for putting a rainbow on the side of it. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah, heaven forbid, right? I mean, it's just ridiculous. So yeah, so I think Lawson is aware of pop culture insofar as it's something that he needs to remain relevant and able to do his job. Let's talk about his job because, of, of, of course, over like 35 books, I'm guessing you didn't stick to the same story for each one. It's not all about yeah. this vampire nation. What are right. some of the other adventures he has? Um, so Lawson is hes funny because he's very good at what he does um, as long as he's got a gun in his hand, so to speak. Um, he doesn't like magic, and there is magic in, the, in this universe and the times that Lawson is forced to deal with the magic are usually, that, that's usually when he has the hardest time, just simply because everything would be so much easier if he could just point a gun at it and shoot it. <laughs> so in other words, and then having to deal with, with the magical aspects of his society is something that, that really he has a hard time with. So anything that, that deals with um, these powers that some of the vampires are able to tap into it's it's always interesting to see how he's going to perform and how he's going to handle those those pressures um usually those are you know power grab adventures of of one sort or another he's he's got one adventure that i really had a good time with it's called ghost in the machine where he is bringing over a defector after the fall of the uh, communist regimes and he gets mixed up to um, mixed up in rather uh, Soviet era mind control supernatural paranormal program so anytime I can kind of pull that stuff in it's it's super fun for me I, I just I really enjoyed talking about the intersection of, of espionage with the paranormal with the supernatural you know all, all that sort of cold war intrigue type stuff uh, I grew up during the Cold War, you know, day after was on TV. So the threat of nuclear war was always imminent. And you would hear these stories about the Soviets are really trying to figure out mind control and they would go to chess matches and try to influence the players. And all that stuff was always fascinating to me growing up. So to be able to work those into the Lost and Adventures is always fun. And those aren't necessarily, you know, somebody's out to take over the entire world type stories, but they're smaller scale with with large um obviously with large stakes but just on a smaller level hmm, cool cool do you have a favorite book in the series i love the invoker because i wrote it with my firstborn so that's uh my oldest son jack who is down in new york 
right now making his own life and i'm super proud of him i just visited with him yesterday on a whirlwind down and back trip but uh side note connecticut your state hobby does not have to be road construction okay i said it oh do do not get me started on connecticut's (laughs) roads that that road system in the state is like a crazy straw the state is like the size of a postage stamp it takes you three hours to cross what the fuck connecticut Dude, I, 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 oh, I can't even tell you. From I got out of New York, made good time getting to the border from the border of Connecticut to Bridgeport when Google Maps mercifully took me off of 95. It was just a shit show. It was, you know, and I hadn't had much sleep the night before. So I'm literally trying to pop Reese's pieces to keep more sugar coming into my bloodstream. I got to stay awake. But, uh, but I digress. The Invoker is is absolutely one of my favorite books. Um, the Kensei Book Five, because that book probably has more of me in it than any other Lost and Adventure. That that book, I've told people, if you want to find out about the trip I took to Japan in February of 2003, read read that book because it's it, the things, the the exposure to Japanese culture, the test that Lawson goes through, um, how he handles that test that's that's everything that i went through that it's a very personal book to me it's it's a love letter to the martial art that i study and my teachers and the people that i've trained with over the years it's um it's as it's as close to my heart as any of any of the lost and adventures so the kensei is is probably my my favorite in terms of the, the personal reason uh the invoker is probably my favorite just because i have such fond memories of feeding my son and writing a book at the same time. It just, yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. Oh, that's great. <laughs> All right. Let us talk about time passing. So of course, 21 years between book one and, and uh, where we are now, do you ever consider yeah. going back and like ch- making changes? Cause I, I imagine as a writer, you probably progressed immensely over two decades. God, I hope so. <laughs> and if I haven't, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Um, yeah, I mean, the only change that I've made to the books over the years is to take out references to payphones. Quite frankly, there were there were you know there were a couple instances I think in the early books when Lawson's at a payphone, and I went back when when eBooks became a thing, and now with NFT books, and I just took it out and just changed payphone to phone. And that's about it. I'm not really fond of changing the books. First of all, because I don't think I've I've got things to be, for lack of a better word, ashamed about that I wrote. Um, my viewpoint, my my sensibilities have always been very much like doesn't matter to me. I mean, your, your life choices are not impacting me. So why should I feel threatened by them? Um, And also, I I think that if there are things in books that people write from an earlier point in their career, I don't necessarily think there's something wrong with leaving it there as a teaching moment as well and saying, you know, I don't know, H.P. Lovecraft. Okay, the guy was clearly a racist. It's it's right here. Let that stand and let people understand that this was written this way and it was accepted this way and it was read and treasured this way and to make sure that we don't fall back into that exact same thing. Again, you know, you, these, these things need to be 
in society so that we don't make the same mistakes. I mean, we're already making a ton of the same mistakes for shit that should have been like, we should have moved on from this decades ago and we're still doing it. And I don't understand it. So I, I think I understand from one perspective, the desire to go back and remove things that might be traumatic for people. I get that, but put a warning label on the book and say, listen, this was written at a different time. You know, you, you don't have to try to justify the author's perspective on this. Just simply put a sticker on it says it was written at a different time. There's, excuse me, there's stuff in this book that you're going to find offensive. But it's your decision whether you read it or not. And if you don't read it, here are some other books over here that you probably have a better time with. Um, so, yeah, so the only changes that I've made to my books uh, just kind of techno, I guess we call them technological, you know, yeah. Um, you mentioned the uh, the NFTs earlier, and I know you've also been putting out different versions of the books. And I'm really curious as to as to the uh, the business of books right now. Um, yeah. What are these things uh, that uh, they're doing aside from just you know the typical print and ebook options? Yeah, I mean, so NFT books are like it or not, and I know a lot of people don't like these because maybe they don't understand it maybe they're getting all their news and they see crypto connected to nfts and they just freak out and it's good to be cautious it absolutely is but the benefit of an nft book is that the biggest benefit is that you actually own it it's yours if you buy an ebook on amazon or another e-tailer you're only leasing that book you know i could i could buy an ebook tonight and then tweet something like oh you know amazon sucks donkey nards and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And Amazon could find me in violation of their terms of service and just choose to ban me in my account forever and wipe out all of my purchases. I don't have that asset. And what NFT books do is give you the opportunity to have that asset for, for as long as you want it stored, you know, decentralized asset out on the blockchain and you can access it from anywhere on any device, you know, you can't do that with Amazon. Some Sometimes you can't access your amazon.com library when you're traveling through Europe and you just wanna fall asleep with a chapter. You can't do that. With NFT books, you can actually do that. The other great thing that NFT books do is give the author a chance to perpetually earn royalties on secondary market sales. So it's not just, you don't just earn money when the person mints a copy of your NFT book if they decide to sell that NFT book on the secondary market, you get royalties in perpetuity for those sales. So if Bob buys and mints my book and then reads it and says, okay, that was a cool book, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell this one and sells it to Susan, Susan, Susan's cost pays me a royalty. And then if Susan reads it and sells it to Pam, then when Pam buys it, I get paid again and so on and so on and so on. So these books actually become passive income generators in the truest sense of the word. When I looked at eBooks for the first time, or when I actually got into writing for the first time, it was because of that fantasy that I had about passive income for the rest of my life. I was like, this is great. I'm gonna become a published writer. My books will be, <clears throat> excuse me, published. And then they'll just live on. And every time somebody buys a copy, I'll get paid. It's gonna be great. <clears throat> Not understanding the realities of the publishing world and how you get six weeks. That's it, Jose, you know, you're done. Um, NFT books for the first time actually 
represent the, the ability to continuously get paid for as long as the NFT is out on the blockchain, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, I actually can see some parallels with this in print because, you know, like if you buy a book in print, it's yours. You 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 own it forever and you can sell to someone else. Obviously you don't get you don't get money for that one, but I'm kinda right. I'm kinda seeing a couple like parallels here. So that's kinda cool yeah. that that changed the industry there. Yeah, and, and book IO, book.io, um, which is the the preeminent platform right now that I've minted three books with, um, they're doing a mint in print option now as well or they're getting ready to unroll that they've partnered with ingram which is only you know like one of the biggest companies around and you're going to have the ability to mint the nft book and then print a version of that book to have as well so once the biggest problem right now with nft books in mass adoption is as soon as they figure out how to take care of all the transaction behind the scenes in other words make it as simple as the buy now button on the Amazon website. You don't have to worry about crypto transfers. You don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry about that. As soon as it, as soon as the user interface gets to be as simple as humanly possible, it's gonna, it's gonna happen. People are gonna flock to this because it's just such a better alternative than just leasing an ebook through Amazon. It's it's your own, and there are gonna be there are tiers of NFT books. What we're seeing right now are very much the collectible versions as if it was a leather bound slipcase edition of a hardcover book. So that's at a higher price point. Then you'll have a mid tier sort of a trade paperback equivalent. And then you'll have the mass market tier, just like the $5 mass market paperbacks. And those will have, you know, fewer, obviously the, excuse me, the, the top tier right now has the most cover selection, has a couple of really cool extras. Um, the trade paperback will have fewer cover options and then the mass market version will just have the same cover for everything, but it'll be the lowest price point so that everybody has an entry point that they can get in at. Damn. You are on, you are on top of this thing. Well, I mean, I, you brought up the print, the parallels to print and it's very much like that with this, as you correctly pointed out with the, with the sole exception being that if you take that print book and sell it on the secondary, I, as the author, don't see a dime of that. With NFT books, I actually do, which is just great. So, um, you know, if you've got 500 people that mint your your NFT book and then, you know, 100 of them decide to go sell it on the secondary market and it keeps going, you're still making money, which is just fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because obviously... Obviously, mm -hmm. making a living as a writer is very, very hard. So any way you yeah. can help to branch out. And yeah. um, you, speaking of which, you also have Audible versions too, right? I do have a couple of audio versions. The first four Lawson books are audio books. Um, the Last Vampire, book one in my Blood Armageddon series, is also out as an audio book. Uh, but that's something that I'm going to be exploring as well because it's not just – uh, for writers that, that NFTs represent this potential. It's for musicians, bands, songwriters, filmmakers. All of these things can be put on the blockchain and pay you in perpetuity. So it's a, as far as I'm concerned, it's a great time to be a creator. It really is. There are just so many options. There are animated TV shows that are being funded by NFTs right now. There's, you know, So yes, the, the, the crypto world is rife with scammers. I've been scammed. I've been part of rug pull NFT projects before. The very first NFT that I bought was something called the KIA, the Koala Intelligence Agency, 
and I loved the premise of it, these cute little furry koala bears that were spies, you know, helping to protect the world. And I bought a bunch of them. And it turned out that the, the owner or the creator or whatever, it was just a rug pull. So I got burned. I've been burned. I'm not approaching this with, oh, well, this is great. We're all going to be, you know, happy and, and this, that, and the other thing. So I've, I've been where people who are concerned about this, where they are right now. And believe me when I tell you that NFT books, it, it's a game changer. It really is. I am more excited within this last six to nine months about where writing and publishing options are pretty much than I have been since eBooks came out. There are so many parallels between what happened when eBooks came out and what's happening right now with NFT books. When eBooks first came out, everybody, oh, you know, print is it's never going to die and eBook thing's going to be a fad. The same shit is happening right now with NFT books. And it's interesting when you have a career that's a couple of decades to be able to look back and say, oh, yeah, I, re I remember that same sentiment back then 10 years ago. And look where we are right now. Ebooks account for, you know, what, $23 billion last year or some insane number like that. Yeah. OK, well, I'll take, you know, one one thousandth of a percentage of that and be, you know, set for life. That's cool. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Now we have touched on this a bit here and there. You have a lot of other series. You have uh, the Shadow Warrior Saga, which is actually how the two of us met. Um, yep. You have Frank Steele, The Ninja Apprentice, Blood Armageddon, The Veiled Knights, Rogue Angel, which you wrote as Alex Archer, and there's a lot more out there. Are yep. these other series still being worked on, or is it just lost yep. in these days? No, it's, you know, the, <laughs> this is going to sound really crazy, but the, for me, the pandemic was really great because I had, I had all of these backburnered projects that I was, because I was focusing a lot on Lossland, really just sort of building up uh, that universe. When the pandemic hit and I realized that, you know, we had a lockdown going on, I said, I'm going to take these backburner projects and just get as many of them complete as I can. So over the course of that year, I, I believe I wrote six full novels. Um, so, and just, you know, picked up and said, yeah, I wanna, I wanna do this one, I wanna do that one. Um, the, the newest series that I have is uh, the Harrison Thatcher uh, series, which is a World War II uh, adventure series. And Thatcher is, a, is an interesting guy because he comes from, he's sort of a trust fund baby, but he's also a con man and he gets caught um, after murdering somebody in self-defense in World War II, Britain, 1940. And he's saved from a firing squad by the very early predecessor of the special operations executive. And basically, the funny way they describe it is he's working for the Department of Sacrificial Lambs and is basically given suicide missions and he has to go out and, and undertake these missions. So the first book in that series is called Raider X, um, which deals with the commerce raiders that the Nazis fielded during World War II. They would be disguised as merchant vessels and go out and ship thousands of tons of Allied shipping. Uh, so I'm working right now on the second Harrison Thatcher uh, book, which is called The Eichert Formula. And uh, Thatcher gets parachuted into Poland and has to make his way to a medical experimentation camp and all sorts of chaos unfolds right now. So, so yeah, so I, I have a new Frank Steele adventure that came out probably within the last year called bolt of blue um that's another world war ii era 
type of thing. Um, and I think what's going to be fun is eventually revealing how all of these pieces, all of these seemingly disparate series are actually connected. So, so yeah, you're yeah. kind of almost, almost building your own like literary universe here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, I, I love to a certain extent, you know, what the Marvel universe or the DC universe is like. I, I don't agree with everything that they've done, obviously, um, you know, changing things around and swapping timelines and all that craziness. <laughs> but, but I, but I love, <clears throat> I love the possibility of, of um, some crossover. Let's just put it that way. Oh, and, and try, cool. try to make it all fit in, in a way that, uh, that serves both the story and, and makes sense at the same time. So not everything will cross over, but there are, there are, it's mapped out. So let's just, let's just put it that way. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, John, man, as always, wonderful speaking with you. And for the folks at home, you've heard all these different book titles. You go to John F. Murs, M-E-R-Z dot net. It is all there. He he, uh, he has a wonderful directory of all the books he's working on, nice and organized, with all the links to purchase them. Of course, get yourself some NFT books, too. It's yes. the change of the business. And it sounds like a really good way to not only support the artist, but to also get a nice, convenient library built up. And, uh yeah. John, sir, I am sure we uh, will be talking very soon for the many other things you have going on. <laughs> yeah, we will. We're going to get the cast of the of the TV pilot on here. Um, my latest NFT book is The Last Vampire. You can pick that up at soultype.io, S-O-L-T-Y-P-E.io. That's available right now. We we uh, we started minting that last week. Um, Soul Type is a brand new platform, so not many copies have sold. And there are some amazing one-for-one -one covers that you can use as your PFP um, profile picture. And uh, so go on out. It's very, very affordable. Just get yourself some Solana crypto, and you can pick that right up. And uh, thank you, as always, Max. I always have a great time talking to you, man. It's great to be here. Me too. Me too. Hi, this is singer Kate Eppers, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. And that brings this episode to a close. Thanks to everyone for listening. And be sure to follow the show on Facebook at Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram at Citywide Max. You can reach me at citywidemax at yahoo.com to suggest a guest or submit music for the Blackout Collection playlist. You can find the show wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. And new episodes are aired every Saturday at 10 p.m. EST on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now. And I'll see you next time.